Welcome to Real Wealth, Real Health, the show that empowers you with insights, information, and inspiration to achieve your version of financial wellness. Learn how to balance living a full life today with planning for the future. This podcast is brought to you by Alpha Investing, a real estate-centric private capital network that provides exclusive investment opportunities to its members. And now, here are your hosts, Ada Piedrico and Daniel Coca. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. Our guest today is Dave Worley, co-founder of Wedgwood Enterprises, a vertically integrated real estate company that operates primarily in single-family residential investments. They also have a variety of related business lines that either support or complement their core strategy, like non-performing loans, private lending, property management, brokerage, escrow, and more. Wedgwood was founded in 1983, and Dave, along with his partner, Greg Geyser, truly started with nothing. Following a single property purchase at auction, they've grown Wedgwood into the multi-billion dollar market leader that it is today. For listeners who are investors in Alpha Fund One, you'll recognize Wedgwood as the entity providing fund capital with a return before it's deployed into active investments. Like us, Dave, Greg, and the Wedgwood team place high value on relationships, and their integrity forms the backbone of their business, one of the many reasons we started our company at their headquarters in Los Angeles. If nothing else, you'll find this episode inspirational and motivating. As you think about taking on any new project, not just investing in real estate, you'll learn from Dave's story just how important it is to put yourself out there and persevere in the face of adversity. Dave, Greg, and the Wedgwood team exemplify the entrepreneur motto popularized by Steve Jobs in his 2005 Stanford commencement address. Stay hungry, stay foolish. Dave, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Yes, very welcome. Very welcome. Glad to be here. You have one of the most um, inspirational stories of anyone that I know in real estate, and we're really excited to share your story with our listeners. And of course, alpha investing is part of your story. So can we start there? Like, why don't we start there with how you got connected to alpha investing and how we, how you became part of our network um, and our business? Sure. So my uh, son was attending UCLA at the time and I was visiting and at some point, I saw a flyer for a presentation from this elderly couple who were graduates of the school, the Naps, and come to find out they were, they were putting on this presentation for a number of years, and they'd get really smart groups of people from school who had a business idea, and they would put together a competition, comp, and competition wherein they would present their ideas. So I thought, wow, that's pretty intriguing. I should go and see because I'm interested in ideas and people, and let's see what this is all about. be a great way to grab my son and have a, have a good, you know, uh, father, son meet. And as I was sitting in there, I was thinking how brilliant the naps were, you know, opportunity is always focusing on opportunity and, and how you can create things is, I don't know if that was a gift that I was given at birth or developed over time from, from mentors, but I thought, wow, this is pretty brilliant. You've got some wealthy graduates from the school who have put up a little bit of money, created this program. And they are, in essence, interviewing the smartest people in the school with a new business idea in which they can choose to invest in going forward. So 
I thought the I thought the basis for it was really fantastic, and so we ended up attending. And there was this this great group that I thought uh, was better than all of the others, and they were real estate related, so they have something to do with my history in real estate. But uh, just thought that they had a really great idea, and uh, went and met them afterwards and said hello. We exchanged information. And when I got back to the office, it so happened we were moving into larger space and we had quite a bit of extra space available. And I thought, wow, look, let's get some smart young people in, see if we can help them create, I guess I'd call it, a, I called it an incubator at the time, but at the, in essence, it was somewhere between, hey, there's a couple extra free desks that you guys can sit in. And if you want to chat with us about anything, we're here. So it was a bit of incubator light, if you will. And so the rest of the partners signed off on that and we started the relationship with Alpha at that point in time. And it's been fantastic to see the growth to the extent that when we've been able to support, I think that's been great. That's part of my personal view of the world and the company's view of the world based on everybody at the company having been helped out by others along the way, that it's now our responsibility to try to do what we can for others to help them grow and and develop. I've always liked the story, you know, Benjamin Franklin had a group that he called the Junta, and it was smart people from the neighborhood, all walks of life, but thoughtful, intelligent people. And he created a group that would meet on a regular basis, and they would come together and talk about their problems, personal, and their problems, business, and what they were doing. And as they sat around, they would help each other through those issues and help them grow into better human beings and ultimately then, you know, uh, a better, uh, better neighborhood, better environment. And, and to the extent that we can do that in some small way or another, we're trying to carry on the Junta tradition there. Well, it, it's funny because you never really know how meeting one person or a group of people can have a long-term impact on, on your company. And, and for us, you know, you guys have actually been probably much more formative than you know, we even share with you in, in a couple of ways. You know, one, the headquarters were originally in San Francisco and we moved them to Los Angeles, um, you know, in part because of your offer to let us work out of your offices, pick your brains, what have you. And there were, for a period of time, four of us living in a house in Manhattan Beach, just kind of getting this thing uh, started. And a lot of our early ideas kind of stemmed from that. And then as we heard your story, and I know you're going to share a bit more about that in a bit, it really helped form the direction that we were taking as a company. Because if you remember from our original pitch, we were really setting ourselves up much more like a fintech crowdfunding platform. And that was all the, the rage in 2014, right? The, the platforms out there raising capital from VCs. We all had venture backgrounds and relationships. And then we heard your story and we kind of learned about this you know, slow, steady, patient, being very like meticulous about the way uh, you grew your company, very intentional. And it really changed our mentality from let's build something in two or three years and then sell it to a PE shop or VC firm to let's create something that actually has long-term lasting value and that, you know, benefits the people in our network. And so we probably don't say it directly, but, you know, we really appreciated the, the guidance that, you know, you've provided along the way, it really has had a major impact on how we formed Alpha Investing. So Daniel, two funny things on that. One is, is the rest of the story we had. So we, for the listeners, we had this, what for us was a really nice office. It was kind of Google-esque people tell us. And so when we first moved in, we had plenty of space and 
as we continue to grow, we had to have conversations with the alpha group of, hey, can you guys move over to this area? And, you know, hey, can you move downstairs into this area? And, hey, we've got a, a it's a little bit smaller space, but can you, can you move here? And at the end of the day, I think we packed you guys into an electrical, a large electrical room downstairs. I don't even know if the place had air conditioning down there, but you guys were, were packed in pretty tightly and, and always willing to do whatever it took. So that's point number one in your, in your comments. Number two, it's so interesting that part of life is just getting in, right? You got to get in and start figuring things out. And we were in a large real estate deal. We were acquiring 356 apartment units in, in Dallas. So part, it was five different buildings, five different properties in, in different locations around Dallas with multiple buildings on each of the properties, but 356 units. And this was pre-COVID. And one of the buildings was burnout. It was owned by Japanese investors who had invested for tax purposes and had not done, to, to say it kindly, not done a great job on the management. And so it was a little bit of a mess, which is okay because we, we like those actually. But you get into the deal and you're in a new area because we're not big in Dallas. And so you're trying to figure out if, if you're going to be taken advantage of by the locals. And coming from California, that doesn't fly well as an introductory uh, piece to uh, to people in Dallas necessarily, because they tend to be on one end of the spectrum, and you know Californians tend to be on another end of the spectrum. But we we met some really great people. We got involved in this deal. We got it in escrow, thirty three million bucks. We we then went through the process of trying to figure out you know what it's going to cost to turn it around. We renegotiated the price a little bit, and then COVID hits. All right, so relationships to us are incredibly important. I, I tell people that I'm mentoring, every touch point you have with people along the way either creates headwind or tailwind. And if it's neutral, I call that a headwind because if you haven't done something to ingratiate yourself or at least be kind to the people that you come across along the way, that's a headwind. Conversely, if you're decent to people along the way and, and, and build positive relationships, doors open, things happen, and you don't know why, but it's because you've done something nice to somebody, you've behaved well in a difficult situation, that person has told someone else that, that person then tells someone else, and before you know it, things are happening and you're not quite sure why, but it's because of the way that you behaved in the past. So. We were able to get in this deal and, and then we renegotiated it again because of COVID and got in, figured it out, and good things started to happen. It would have been really easy to say, look, this deal's too, got too much hair on it for us. Let's just get out. But, but getting in really helps. The second thing that you mentioned, which was your change of direction at Alpha, look, when we started back in the mid-80s, what was the thing to do was create a company, show that it could grow really big. And this was the time, I don't know if you, you guys remember, it was called Green Mail, where you'd have a group of uh, wealthy investors buy up a bunch of stock in a company. And then they would essentially hold the company hostage and, and threaten to throw out the entire board of directors unless they got bought off at a premium. So there was some crazy stuff going on in the stock market, and it worked for quite a long time. But as young people, we thought, wow, the, 
the way that we need to comport ourselves is to build this machine that we can show can go nationwide and then we'll sell and we'll all be millionaires at 25. Well, you get in, you find out it's not that easy, right? There's a lot of things that you got to learn. Just so happened then we had, we had a little downturn in 86 and then in 91 and ended up really having to get scrappy and the whole idea of, of going big and going public was, was thrown out the window, but it was a big change of direction at that point in time. And that's, you know, that's what you got to do, get in, be willing and show up and figure it out. So, so Dave, just based on, based on that, when you, when you first started, how did you get in to real estate investing yourself? So I mentioned, you know, opportunities and whether I was born with them or whether I learned them. And I, I, I just, I was always looking for how to like do something that was cool and that I enjoyed and that would be able to create a nice life. So my dad went to Long Beach Poly, which local high school where he grew up and he had a buddy named Freddie Meshagan and Freddie would buy a couple houses a year and fix them up. And so my dad, who originally uh, sold auto parts, didn't go to college, sold auto parts for a living for a while, then started hanging drywall. And that was his trade through, through the time that he passed. Always respected Freddie Meshagan. And, oh, Freddie, yeah, he's got, you know, he's just super smart. He's got a lot of things going on. And he buys houses and fixes them up, fixes them up, fixes them up and sell, sells them. So, you know, being this guy that's looking for opportunity, which funny side story here. So I, I can remember back being in the back of my parents' station wagon with my brother. And there was an oil embargo in 73. I was probably 12 at the time. And cars, a lot of your listeners will remember, literally a mile parked waiting to get into the gas station. People would push their cars forward as the line moved. And so I'm in the back of my parents' station wagon and we're driving by and you know, we never really had, I can remember 99% of the time that we went to the gas station, the family didn't have enough money to fill the tank. And that was when gas was 35 cents, 40 cents a gallon, right? So really good parents really, really had the opportunity to, to stand on their shoulders, but we didn't have a lot of money. And we're driving by this gas station. I'm in the back of the station wagon. And I, I look over and I see there's six pump hoses there, but only four cars can fit at the pumps. So we get home and I tell my little brother, who's two years younger than me, Mike, let's go get the gas cans off the trailer and get the wagon. And so we would take the wagon down to the front, fill the gas cans up. And we had this little, you know, a sign that a 14 year old, 12 year old would make that said, you know, gas. And I forget what the price was. We added like 40% or something to the price that we had paid for it. And we'd walk down the street and, you know, you'd get dirty looks from a couple people. Like, how did you get in line in front of me? But, you know, a quarter mile back when people knew they still had 45 minutes to wait, you'd sell the gas and then we'd go back to the front. So always looking for opportunities. And so my dad's talking about Freddie Meshagan and these houses that he's buying. And I said, dad, can, can you give me a job with Freddie? Because I'd like to learn. So my first job in real estate was scraping wallpaper for Freddie Meshagan. 
And Freddie was, he had a nice, he seemed to have a really nice life. You know, he had, he had an old black Buick Riviera that was really stylish. He had the hair swooped back on his head and really nice man. But I would, I would pull the garden hose in and spray the walls down and scrape wallpaper. So to the extent that you can learn the business scraping wallpaper, that was, that was the start. And so I graduated from, from high school and wasn't, so my parents didn't go to college, so I didn't have any guidance there. Spent most of my time in high school reading Hot Rod Magazine in class. And I ended up at the local Cerritos College, junior, junior college. And I'm thinking, gosh, what am I going to do? Like, I thought I was going to play professional football. That went away pretty quickly. I got to figure this out. And so thinking back to Freddie, I thought, gosh, I need to figure out a way to get some money together and try to buy some real estate. So I started to investigate what it took to get student loans. And I found out that if I moved out of my parents' house, I could declare my own income and I could get a lot of student loans. So I moved in with my buddy. I took student loans. I took Pell Grants. I took all the money that I could get together. And I used it for a down payment on a, on a four-unit apartment building in Long Beach on 7th and Grand. And because my dad was in the trade and he was active around our house all the time building things, I learned a lot watching him and tearing things apart in the garage and was very hands-on. So knew the inside of a wall and most of the components of a house very well. So my brother, who was working for my father then at the time, had a little bit of regular income. I had put up the uh, down payment and deposit for the property on the, using the student loans. And we used his money to kind of cover any negative cash flow or construction that we had. So we began working on that place and fixing it up. And I figured out a way to get myself uh, into UCLA as a junior and uh, continued to, to work on the property and got involved in a lot of different things at UCLA that were really helpful to my, to my growth. But really always felt, I felt out of place a lot. Like I was like, I wasn't worthy of being around these people. A lot of which had, you know, uh, for me at the time seemed to be wealthy parents. And so learning how to become like successful and, and how you act and funny, the little things along the way that you remember, I can remember being in college and going into a hotel and for the first time ever seeing cloth napkins on the counter, uh, cloth towels, towels on the counter and thinking like, these are cloth towels. Like this must be a pretty ritzy place. You wipe your hands off with the cloth towels and like, what do you do with the cloth towels? Oh, okay. There's a, there's a bin there. So, you know, learning these things along the way and met some good people, which I think it always takes in life and started interviewing. I went to Marine Corps officer candidate school during the summers and that was a great experience. Continued to work on the property on the weekends and had a role in the UCLA ski club and a role in the fraternity that I was in. And so, again, got to meet a lot of people. Ultimately, started interview for a job and Procter & Gamble came to the school, went through a process, which was pretty rigorous. I think I interviewed with seven different people to get a job and started at Procter & Gamble. Great company. It was a sales management training position. And when they would fly out the guy that was in charge of our region, 
he was, he lived back in Cincinnati and he was, he was a big wig at, at Procter and Gamble. And we would drive my route, which was effectively going into grocery stores, going to 11 grocery stores a day was the goal and meeting the manager who, who did not want to see you. They got all of their distribution from their corporate offices. And here I am, you know, at 23, trying to go in and take the manager's time. And it's the last thing that he wanted to do. So it was a difficult job uh, for me, it, it was. But I'd be with this senior guy. And he, he in the conversation, we'd be talking about, oh, you know, what did you do last weekend? And it, he one time said, well, we, uh, you know, I was on, we've got a, we've got a, a yacht, we've got a, a large boat. And we spent a lot of time on that. And so as I'm pondering this after he left, I'm thinking, wow, I could, I could have that if I worked really hard here. And I could probably have a million bucks in the bank by the time that I retired if I played my cards right. But I'm selling Pringles. I'm selling Jif. I'm selling Crisco oil and Duncan Hines cake mix and, and soft cookies. And I'm going into a store and they hate to see me every day. And I think they're right. I don't think that I'm worthy of their time. They got better things to do than talk about buying an extra case of cookies from me. So six months in, I knew that job, I, I, I couldn't do it. I, I couldn't continue doing it. But back to the relationship piece, super important for me to have at least one year on the first job versus six months. So I'm going through that process about six months in at Procter & Gamble, and I was dabbling in triathlons at the time when I was in college, and just so happened through a series of events, I got to know the dean of students uh, at UCLA. He oversaw, he oversaw a couple things on campus. One was the fraternities, and our fraternity often got in trouble with the university, and I was vice president, so I'd, I'd often have to deal with Peter Weiler for that purpose. And it so happened that my girlfriend at the time was a cheerleader and he oversaw the cheerleading squad as, as one of his jobs. So I knew him through her too. So got to meet him and we were able and, you know, always in relationships, even when there's really difficult issues to discuss and you're on the opposite side of the issue to try to be super thoughtful and go away with the person respecting you. And so because of the fraternity situation, I was often on the other side of Peter. And yet we were able to develop this great relationship. And I was doing triathlons, I was cycling, and it just so happened I would cycle with Peter every once in a while. And Peter Weiler, this dean of students, had a running partner. And his running partner was this guy named Greg, Greg Geyser. So on these rides, I'd start to hear about this guy, Greg Geyser, and he was working for uh, a big developer at the time downtown Westwood, which is the town that's adjacent to UCLA. And uh, it was a multinational company, company that all, it's Castle and Cook effectively, but their, their development division. And uh, Greg was working there. And so I'd hear these things that were going on with Greg. And I thought, wow, Greg, undergraduate Oklahoma State in engineering, Anderson Business School graduate, now working for a huge company connected with some very high level previous chief of staff of the United States was his boss. Uh, and I thought, wow, okay, I need to try to work on this relationship. So as we continue the conversation, Greg, as I'm hearing it secondhand, well, Greg is starting to look at investing in small real estate deals. 
And then a little bit further on, oh yeah, Greg's going to be leaving the company. I'm thinking, I got to get together with Greg. I got to, I got to meet this guy because this is the kind of thing that I want to do. So I asked Peter to set up a meeting under the auspices of, hey, Peter, you know, I know that Greg knows development and I've got this little four unit building in Long Beach. Do you think I could get with him? I mean, I'd like to talk to him about developing that. And maybe I could also talk to him about, you know, what his grand plans are. So we get a meeting. It's at Papa Pete's breakfast and lunch spot in Westwood. And I'm nervous, right? I'm a kid from, you know, middle blue collar, lower blue collar area and meeting this guy who seems incredibly well connected. And I think he's going to like just not give me the time of day. I go in and I meet one of the nicest human beings that I could imagine. And we have a great conversation. I said, I'd really like to meet you again. I'd like to talk a little bit more about what I might be able to do for you. And so we set up that second meeting. I go back and I put together this extended resume portfolio all the way back to selling gas as a kid, a 12-year-old, right? <laughs> and I put it in front of Greg and he, in our second meeting, he flips through it, looks like, oh, wow, looks like you've done a lot. Yeah, it looks, I said, well, okay, so, you know, you've now, at this point in time, he's left and he's starting this new company. I said, can I come to work for you? And he said, no. And I was shocked, but not being willing to take no for an answer. It's was like, well, why? He said, because I don't have any money. The extent of the business plan that I have, Dave, is I get paid $3,000 a month and we've got another $1,000 a month for overhead and I've got to go figure out. So I don't have any money for you. I said, look, I knew that he had purchased a duplex in Manhattan Beach at the time. And I said, Greg, look, you've got this place in Manhattan Beach. Let me do all the work. I'll tear the kitchen out. I'll paint it. I'll do the landscaping. Whatever needs to be done, I'll handle it. You just pay me what you would pay anybody else. And I will work for free in the office two, three days a week. I'll study for my real estate broker's license. And when this duplex is finished and ready to sell, we can list it through my real estate license and I'll get paid that way. Well, hard to take free, you know, hard to say no to free, you know, in that, in that sense. So I was able to get my foot in the door and come to work, work for Greg at the time. He'd been, he'd been at it about six months and didn't have a huge business plan that he had thought through for, you know, a year and a half. And it was, let's get in and try to figure it out. And how, how unplanned it was, this little story will, will let you know. So Greg stumbles upon these auctions. They're listed in the newspaper. And wow, okay, what does it take to go to these auctions? They're outside in a public place. You got to show up with, with cash, cashier's checks. And Greg had been loaned a $100,000 line of credit from this person that he had previously worked for with the understanding, Greg, you go find the deals. We'll use the line of credit to buy the deal. And you do all the work to create some profit and we'll split the profit 50-50. And that was, that was the extent of it. So Greg's got a little bit of money. He's got this clipping out of a newspaper. 
without doing very much research at all, shows up at the auction site. There's one other couple there, which is if, if no one else is at the auction, now we know is a little bit of like, okay, what's, what am I missing? Because if this is a deal, there should be people here after it. In this case, there was one other couple. Greg blurts out after the guy says, you know, calls out the opening bid and checks that they've got the proof of funds. Greg blurts out, paw a penny. And the auctioneer says, okay, going once, going twice, third and final, sold. And I think they, I think it was like $111,000 or something like that that they paid for a little house in Pasadena. And Greg's with somebody at the time. That person goes inside to fill out the paperwork. And Greg thinks, wow, this other couple was here. They look distraught. I'm going to track them down and find out what's, what's going on. And Greg tells the story. He's shaking at the time because he's just spent a huge sum of money. The hundred grand that he had been loaned, plus money from grandma and you know friends, because none of us came from any money, so we didn't have any you know we didn't have anybody to call on for funds. So Greg chases this couple down, says, you know, excuse me, I noticed that you were here and you didn't bid, and and what's your story? And and the wife says, oh, that is the best house in Pasadena. We love that house. We were in escrow on that house trying to buy it. We just didn't have the cash to come to the auction. So Greg says, well, what were you in escrow at? And they said 125 grand. And so Greg quickly tries to calculate, well, what's, what's a 3% commission on 125 grand? And okay, well, what, what, if we, what if I sold the property to you for 122.5 right now? And they looked and looked at each other, looked at Greg and nodded their heads and said, all right, we'll give you a $1,000 deposit right now. So on the hood of their car, they wrote out a $1,000 deposit for this house. Greg walks back in, his buddy from business school at UCLA that he was, was there with. He sets the check down in front of, in front of Chris and says, we, I just sold our house. And so that was the start of Wedgwood. And incredibly lucky start because it is very likely that that property could have had unknown deeds on it liens, all sorts of potential problems. But I guess we've got some good guardian angels and it worked out. And from that day forward, it was refining the process day after day and trying to create positive relationships. A lot of mistakes, a lot of mistakes, a lot of sleepless nights, but continued to grow and, and build relationships. And you now fast forward now, I guess almost 35 years, which is really amazing to think about. I think about somebody who was my age when I started at 25 and thinking, wow, they've been at it 35 years. That's like, they're, they're antique. That's like a, that's like a national treasure business. It's old, but you know, we, we were 600 employees or something along those lines. We're in 17 States. We've expanded the operation from the, the, the backbone, which the backbone still is acquiring distressed properties. About 80% of those are acquired at auction. We also created a company called uh, Civic Financial Services because as we were selling some of these properties off, we thought, well, if we sell some of these deals off early before we go through the whole rehab process and we leave a little bit of profit there for an investor, we can turn them quicker and maybe increase the IRRs a little bit. 
So we started doing that, but shortly, like second deal, a person came to us and said, well, can you loan us money on that? So that really was the, the impetus to start Civic and create this platform that now is lending $100 million a month on uh, fix and flip properties around, uh, around the country. So we got that. We buy uh, non-performing loans, large pools of non-performing loans, and just try to improve every day and uh, keep the relationship solid, which we've been through three, depending on how you count, of three or four recessions. The 91 recession was really devastating. I was literally making burritos out of a refried, uh, Rosarita refried burrito can, wrapping them in tin foil. And we were doing, to make money, we were doing broker price opinions for banks during the 91 recession. And at 10.30, 10.30 in the morning, I'd get that foil wrapped burrito out of my trunk and I'd set it on the manifold of the car, drive around another hour and a half so it was nice and toasty hot. And that was, that was lunch every day. So we've been incredibly blessed to get to where we are and learned a lot along the way and lots more of the story, but that's probably, that's probably good enough for, uh, for today. So it sounds to me, I was going to say that there's also a lot of resilience. I mean, like a lot of persistence and not giving up. How did you, I guess, like personally or, or psychologically, like, how did you think and set yourself up to get through those times? Well, I think, you know, I, I had parents who instilled values. I went to, to Catholic school all the way through high school that instilled cer- a certain level of values, which was always around uh, doing the right thing. And I guess I'm a very optimistic person by nature and also willing to go like, yeah, so I had to eat beans out of a can, like really big deal. I mean, it's a good story, but... I'd rather I'd rather take a risk and end up in a situation like that than sell potato chips for the rest of my life, right? And I, I didn't really have any interest in doing much else. But the values piece, I think, is critical because along the lines of 35 years, you know, you get people that come in and propose ideas and you work with, and they they don't do the right thing. And then they're done, right? They've just blown their relationships and they've created huge headwinds and we won't do business with them anymore. And anybody that asks us about them, you know, we try not to say uh, bad things about people, but we also don't want other people that we know to get hurt by, you know, bad actors. And, and so they pretty much cut their opportunities off drastically. And so being good to people creates additional opportunities that even when it does get really tough, and you're trying to get through it. And, you know, Greg, as the leader of the company through the 91 recession, which uh, I said was really the worst, the worst because it was a combination of lack of knowledge because we were still really young at that point in time, all like under 30 still. We borrowed money from the bank to, to pay payroll for a period of time, which was a mistake. And we had a bunch of different investors that we had developed through, uh, we created these Wedgwood funds. And the idea was that they would run for 18 months acquiring distressed properties. And we'd bring investors in. And then after the 18 months, we'd stop buying and we'd sell all of those properties off. So we had told investors based on our previous experience that we thought we'd hit returns in the 15 to 18% range. But when the recession hit, 
We couldn't do that. And Greg called everybody together and everybody at that time was probably, excuse me, was probably 15 people, maybe, maybe 18 people called everybody together and said, guys, I've got some challenging news. We cannot make Friday's payroll. We will pay everybody what's due to them the following Friday, but I have to let, uh, let all of you go. And it was all except for four of us and Greg, I have to let all of you go. And we don't have any money for severance. When we get back on our feet, we'll, we'll do something for you, but we're very sorry. It's just the situation we're in. So everybody, but Greg and four of four of us left and Greg, who is uh, probably the most honest, thoughtful, giving, loyal guy that uh, I've ever met, called us in and said, look, it's the five of us now. I'm going to split the company up and we're all going to get a share. And he was very generous in giving shares out. We're going to get in front of every single investor and we're going to tell them exactly what's going on. We're going to call them the following week and tell them what we've done and what's going on again. And we're going to keep all of our uh, banking relationships solid. We're going to have the same communication level with them. And we're going to keep all of our credit reports perfect. And so those were the marching orders. And Greg made those calls day after day after day. And he tells the story, every day was worse than the last day. And every week was worse than the last week for probably two years. And we just continued to try to grind through it. We'd have... We'd have three, three partners at the time working on a broker's price opinion. We'd get 75 bucks. And when that check came in, we'd split it up amongst us. And so it was, it was, it was really hard, but you know, it's, it's leadership, I think. And uh, I think Greg's example of maybe giving away more than most people would kept us very much involved and focused to get through the, the, through the, through the process and back to the, the tailwind analogy, because of what we did for the banks, we paid them all back and we had great communication with them. When distressed deals started to come through and the economy started to look a little bit more solid, they'd call us up. Hey, we got, we got this deal. Hey, we've got this deal. Hey, we've got that deal. And things started to become more and more profitable. And we learned an incredible amount from that. We now track every single call that we get on listings that we have. We formed, because I got my broker's license, we formed this internally owned company called Maxim Properties. And Maxim Properties, a division of Wedgwood that sells off most of our assets that we have acquired and then fixed up. So we had the opportunity then, because we receive all of the calls and all of the offers on the inventory, we track every single call that comes in against our inventory. We track the number of offers that come in against our inventory. And so since the 91 recession, we've been about three months ahead of where our competitors know the business is going and about six months ahead of where the newspaper knows the business is going. So we were able to use that painfully learned information in the recession, in the 2007-2008 recession, to, to our benefit, was one of the most profitable periods of, of our company's uh, existence. So 
you know, your question, you know what, you just, I guess you just keep, keep, you just keep showing up and keep trying to figure it out. And if you've got smart people around the table, good ideas come from it and they evolve. And sometimes what you end up with is nothing like what you thought it was going to be, but it ends up good because, you know, look, the, the world in the United States in particular provides us with an incredible opportunity to do great things. And it just takes hard work and, and thoughtful, thoughtful people. Yeah, it's a story that, you know, I've obviously heard this story before, but it's one I love to hear. Uh, it's it's such like a re-inspiring story. So many people think that being an entrepreneur is just this sexy lifestyle where you're your own boss. And these stories just really hammer home the roller coaster ride that it is, you know, the resilience. There's a, a phrase that I love, stay hungry, stay foolish, that comes from the the whole earth epilogue, which is like a written form of Wikipedia back in the day, you know, just love the story. And I think a lot of our, our investors, many of whom are entrepreneur, entrepreneurs in their own way, whether they're, you know, physicians in private practice or, or lawyers or, you know, running any variety of companies, this type of story, it really resonates with them. And so personally, I, I love to hear it. Oh. Well, thank you. It's, you know, it's, uh, I just, I feel blessed to have been in a way stumbled upon it and, you know, it's called success is a combination of hard work and luck. And, and I've had a good, good share of that. And I'm really proud of the company, you know, especially in, in our, in our current, you know, crazy times of what's going on. We've, we've always uh, tried to be very supportive of the community and those have, not only is it uh, good for the community, but, you know, it's great. We've revitalized a couple different schools, inner city schools, where we've sent groups of people to, to actually repaint schools and put murals on and, uh, you know, paint new hopscotch uh, lines and put in new furniture. We do the, the teacher's lounges and, you know, we don't, we're, it's, it's, it's been really good for us and, and morale. And we try to do a lot of those things. We're generally humble people, so we don't really advertise them very much, but we got our hands at a lot of uh, a lot of a lot of different things. Well, Dave, I mean, I, I would love to probably spend another hour <laughs> talking about everything everything else that we haven't been able to cover. But I, I did want to ask, in you know, in the context of what our podcast is about and building a healthy financial foundation, which you've done now, what how do you think about building wealth? I didn't understand the stock market well, didn't, didn't understand high finance well. What I, what I came to understand about real estate, which was really intriguing to me and drove me towards, the real, towards real estate as an opportunity, was that it was one of the greatest creators of wealth, of wealthy people in the history of the world. And so there was a drive to really understand it. And when I, when I distilled it down to something very basic. It resonated with me like this is the way to, to do it. And, and that distillation was properties have increased in value on average since World War II was last time I looked 3%, may even be a little bit higher now, but 3% year over year. So if the formula is I'm going to buy a property, I'm going to put 25% of my own money in, and I get to own this asset. The asset's going to appreciate, say, 3% a year. But I've only got 
cash in of 25%. So on the 25% cash, I'm getting 3% increase in value on the entire asset that I own, which means I'm getting a four multiple. So if, if the property doesn't throw off cash at all, I'm making close to a 12% return on my money over time. Where can you get that? Setting aside the fact that if you buy it appropriately, it should be throwing off in today's market in LA, 3%, 5%, in other markets that were moving towards 4.5% to 5.5%. It just seemed like a no-brainer. And then as you get more sophisticated and you understand the opportunities around tax savings through 1031 exchanges and deferral of, 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 the, of the tax, and then you can drive by it. I think that was another big thing for me. I, I tend to be very fairly visual and I like having things that, that I'm proud of. And so you take an old beat up building and you improve it and now you've got this whole new life to the building itself and new life living inside with new tenants and 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 you can kind of I it's I, it, I don't know, it brings a smile to my face and so so I like it I understand it uh, I control it the stock market I've always thought there's the guy on the shop floor of Ford Motor Company who probably knows what's really going on he's trying to spin the story to his boss to make himself look good. His boss is doing the same thing to his boss. Then you have the Goldman Sachs analyst who's getting spun the story. And the Goldman Sachs guys are super smart. They're going to get the first opportunity to make money on anything that, that shows up, and they're going to take it. The Goldman Sachs guys is there, are then spinning it to the guys that are actually interfacing with the public. And that's the guy that you're talking to. So you're six layers away from knowing what's going on. And even the smartest guy in the world, I don't know if they could really tell you what Ford Motor Company's worth, right? And so it was always a bit of hocus-pocus uh, to me. And so, you know, the small amounts that I did invest in the stock market, I've, I've uh, had repositioned over time into something that I really understand. And, and this is it. So hopefully that's a good answer to your question. Yeah, I think I think it I think it is. It it's it really speaks to the essence of who you are and how you think about things. And yeah, there's there's just so much there's just so much wisdom even in 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 that response. And uh, you know, we're really grateful at Alpha Investing for our relationship with you. As you know, we're very relationship based as well. And you know, having, you know, having you as a resource, having you as part of our business really helps us be as as good as we can be with what we've got right now. And we're in that small, you know, that smaller phase. We're not in the electrical closet anymore, but you know, I think I think Dan records from a closet when we do these podcasts. So, but but well, you know. you're, you're, Yeah, you're you're very welcome and it's been it's been a pleasure for me too to see the to see the growth and uh, you know as an investor with you guys, you know, uh, we we don't invest with people that we don't trust and we've we've known you guys I think 6 7 years now and uh, been a great relationship and really excited to see the continued growth. Yeah, we look forward to it. We very much look forward to it. 
So thank you so much for, for being with us. We hope to have you back again sometime in the future. And um, also very much appreciate you taking the time at this time when things have been crazy busy, I'm, I'm sure for you as well. So thank you again so much for, for coming on and talking to us. You're very welcome. Go make things happen and have a great day. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially, we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.